1971, and a man named Bob Damron is on a road trip. He would spend about six months, about half his year, doing traveling. He would fly to Miami, and then, you know, for the next week, he would travel to all the gay spots in Southern Florida. But this road trip was not strictly for fun. Everywhere he goes, Bob is making lists, evaluating. Music? Disco. Pool table? Yes. Snacks? Uh, some. And what about cops? Bob is making a travel guide. And for decades, that guide, the Bob Damron Address Books, opened up the world for gay travelers. Today, they're a treasure trove for two historians who are using them to create an interactive map of LGBTQ spaces in mid-century America. I'm Amanda McGowan, and this is Alice Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Mapping the gay guides after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The story starts with our road tripper, Bob Damron. I think it's one of those names, at least, at least in LGBT households, should be relatively common and was common up until relatively recently, the last 10 to 15 years. This is Eric Gonzaba. He's a historian at Cal State Fullerton and one half of the project Mapping the Gay Guides. We'll hear from the other half of the project, Amanda Reagan, in a bit. If there's anything that makes these guides incredible to me is that like they really put on literally on the map what the queer world was like in the 50s and 60s and all the way through the 2000s. For the last few years, Eric and Amanda have been researching Bob's life and the Bob Damron address books that he labored over for decades. It's not an easy task. When I try to find an image of Bob online, the only ones that come up are on Eric and Amanda's site. In these, Bob is a trim, handsome guy with dark hair and a big 70s mustache. In one photo, he's on the phone, wearing a shirt with a pot leaf on it that I think says smoking team. In another, he's cheesing for the camera in a shirt with giant lapels. Again, the 70s. This is actually the first image that Eric and Amanda were able to find of Bob, and that was over one year after the project began. But some details did come together about Bob's early life. He was born in the 1920s in Los Angeles, and by the time he was in his 20s, 
he decided to open a bar. And it's called the Gaiety, which is kind of ironic, um, but it's a straight bar. He has no interest, at least to what I know, he has no interest in making this a gay bar by any means. Bob himself is gay, but in L.A. in the 1950s, that's complicated. The problem with Los Angeles, it is it is probably the worst city to be gay in, in the country. The, the LAPD is far worse than New York's police departments from any major police departments. Nevertheless, Bob's empire of bars grows. At this point, while he's living in L.A., he'll own or operate a handful of bars. But Eric says by the end of his career, that number will probably be around 10 to 15. And one of them will get raided uh, in the 1950s. I have evidence of that. It's helpful to remember that in the 1950s, not only is it illegal to be gay, gay sex is Sodomy laws are in every single state across the country, but it's also illegal to serve homosexuals alcohol in many cities. And so it's just rampant homophobia and the bar is raided because he's, he's accused of, or at least his bar is accused of serving alcohol. By the early 1960s, Bob makes the move up to San Francisco. He's still in the bar business and he's traveling a lot for work, making connections with beer distributors all over the country. He knows how to get to these like safe gay bars because often gay bars are not, you have to be in the know or if you're lucky in a city that you are visiting has a gay newspaper that might have a directory of gay spots in the back. But why would you publicize spots that might be raided to the police right on the back of a newspaper? Um, but Dameron wanted a safe, kind of like a, a guide to help people uh, navigate where safe spaces are for more people. He starts building this travel guide and he's going to call it the address book. I'm looking at some photos of Damron address books from the late 60s and the 70s. These are pocket-sized guides. They're small. They're designed to fit in the palm of your hand. And each year has a different design. The covers are these bright colors, blue or purple and orange, with the title in like a retro font. But there is one thing that you will not see on the cover of these early editions, which is any mention at all that this is a guidebook for gay travelers. Up until the late 1980s, Nothing about the guides say that they're gay travel guides. And he basically lists every single state and every, most cities, major cities, and sometimes smaller towns in every single state. And he just lists the places that gay people might be able to go. Um, and sometimes he lists places that he's kind of telling people not to go, right? This is an unsafe spot. Cops continually raid this space. Damron's address books list bars and nightclubs, but also theaters, restaurants, baths, even churches and religious organizations. The first run quickly sells around 5,000 copies, and then it becomes a yearly updated thing. If Bob couldn't visit a place in person, he would call them up and ask, like, hey, are you still at this address? Any amenities you want us to mention in the guide? He must have made thousands of phone calls. Remember, this is all pre-internet. All of these updates made it into the guide, along with some occasional cheekiness. He knew that bars were sometimes financially struggling, so he was like, I'll send you guys, just send me the price of them when you get the money, when you sell them, right? Well, occasionally bars wouldn't, sell, wouldn't pay them him back, right? Then he would call these bars out within the guy, which is really fun. You know, he'll be like, they still owe me money, you know, in, in the text. As Eric mentioned there, the guides were sold in bars, but you could also later on buy them directly from the company, which advertised in gay newspapers. And by the late 1980s, 100,000 copies of the Dameron address books circulated annually. Eric says these books opened up worlds for the people who picked them up. I imagine finding a book and realize there's spaces everywhere across the country and in fact across the world. That must have been liberating to so many gay people in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So now I, I kind of want to pivot to talking about the project, but um, do, do both of you remember the first time you saw a Damron guide? Yes. <laughs> 
I do. Yes, I do. It was in those weeks before the defense when we were yeah. like oh, yeah. so stressed out. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. we were sharing an office that semester and we're just like writing like mad. This is Amanda Reagan, a historian at Clemson and Eric's partner on the Mapping the Gay Guides project. Eric calls her Mandy throughout this interview. They met as graduate students at George Mason, where Eric had come across the Damron address books while working on his dissertation. And we were both teaching an undergraduate digital history course. Um, And so I had done this assignment with the African-American Green Books um, and was telling Eric about it. Um, And he goes, oh, I have guidebooks, too. And I think you even I don't remember if you pulled it up on your computer or if you pulled it out of your backpack um, and showed me. And I instantly was like, oh, my God, we should do a digital history project like this, which sounded way more fun than writing my dissertation. Eric and Amanda set about tracking down the guides which, kind of like the process of learning about Bob Damron himself, was not easy. Amanda tells me that only one library in the U.S. has a complete run of the Damron address books. And then when the team did get a hold of them, there were other issues. Many of the locations listed didn't have addresses attached. Either street names had changed over the years, or the guide just told readers to inquire locally for the exact spot. So in order to put these places on a modern map, the team had to get a little bit creative. For example, last semester, one of our grad students was looking for um, a particular, I think it was a hotel bar, and ends up finding a matchbook that was being sold on eBay that had like the address of the bar and and sort of a little drawing of it. Sometimes we find postcards in historical societies. Sometimes we find, you know, on the rare, rare occasion, we find pictures. What does plotting these spaces on a map tell you? Like, what kind of avenues does that open up? One thing is that it allows us to see um, that, you know, contrary to uh, sort of the, the, the maybe the dominant public perception that gay life existed in New York and San Francisco, right? It's actually in all across the country. Um, and it's all across the country before Stonewall, right? Which is typically one of the major points that people um, point to as the beginning of the, the gay rights movement. I came to came to this project because I was interested in that, like, when I came out in high school in Indiana, was I the only gay person from Southern Indiana, right? It felt like that. And these guys proved that, like, not only was I not the only gay person, probably, in Southern Indiana, but, like, queer people before me were not the only queer people, right? And they didn't just live in their houses. They lived in communities, and they started institutions that were for them and by them. Another revelation came from Damron's meticulous tracking of amenities, like whether a place had a pool table or what kind of music it played, whether the crowd was older or younger. And even though the guides were geared specifically toward a white male audience, there are also hints of other information, like is this a place that women frequented? Was there a multiracial clientele? And I love it. Like you get to see what was important to the nightlife world or whatever. For instance, by the by the 80s, at least by the 70s, you start getting V for video, right? Which tells us that, you know, gay bars are including a TVs for the first time, right? You see the transition of these spaces. You want to understand how the how the gay community in a, in a city grew or how it changed, how it moved, whatever the question you're asking may be. What I think our map does is allow you to, to visualize that change over time. Mandy had a really good idea when we first started the project. She really wanted to get into the 1980s because she was like, I'm curious what happens to these listings during the AIDS crisis, right? Do you start seeing more health clinics listed? Do you see the collapse of the gay community in places like San Francisco and stuff like, right? With digitized mapping, you can ask different questions and you can try to figure out 
new historical answers to these historical questions that you didn't have otherwise in a way you cannot necessarily do on a physical map, right? Mm -hmm. Bob Damron ran the guides until 1987. He planned to spend his retirement writing biographies of notable people, but sadly he died of AIDS in June of 1989. Before he died, Bob sold the guides to another company, which kept them going. And in the 90s, they became more inclusive. There was a separate guidebook published for lesbian travelers. There were more listings for trans spaces. The company, in fact, still exists, and they have an online database with listings covering the United States and international destinations. Today, the Mapping the Gay Guides project is still crunching through the data that the guides left behind. They're working on creating visualizations so you can see changes over time. All their data is publicly available and downloadable, and on their site, you can click around on their map. To Eric, these guides are a powerful historic artifact that speak to LGBTQ life in the past and still resonate today. It is an incredible piece of evidence to suggest that queer people were never always in the closet, did not always feel unsafe in public, right? They were never always in isolation. They're a real testament to this, right? I think to, to make sense of queer people is not just making sense of their politics and their culture, right? But making sense of their, their sense of place. Queer people were everywhere. They were occupying spaces and creating their own spaces and, and you know, and they were quite public often, you know? The recent kind of historical battles that we're having or political battles that you're having in Florida, right, is really trying to erase people from their history, saying that your culture is new. And I think the Damron Project suggests that queer people have always been part of American life, at least in the 20th century, right? And so to accuse it of being this kind of new fad is ridiculous, right? If anything, we're forgetting our history more that's causing these problems as opposed to, to learning about it and, and, and informing our, our, our political decisions and our, our, our worldviews now. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. And if you would like to learn more about anything that you heard today, you can check out our website at atlasobscura.com. I'm Amanda McGowan, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll see you next time. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. 
The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. 